0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we are actually offsite, not in our podcast studio, but we're at NYU on a beautiful day. It's the start of November, Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. And I'm sitting here with a good friend of mine, someone I've become good friends with, and I'm excited to have on the podcast because this is going to be a really cool episode. Uh, but Jessica Evert who is the Clinical Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine here at NYU Langone, as well as the Genetic Counselor for the Pancreatic Cancer Center at NYU Langone, which is part of the Perlmutter Cancer Center here at NYU. Did I say that correctly? You Jess?
1: got the whole thing right. Nice job. Awesome.
0: Awesome. I had it written down for the folks. <laughs> I always say, I wish we had like a video v- uh, vlog to go along with the podcast because then you could see all my notes here. But in all seriousness, thank you, Jessica, for being on the podcast. I know you were on the podcast. Uh, hopefully people know the name because they've listened to the previous episode. I think we did almost, a, oh, it could have been almost a year ago. It's been a
1: while. Yeah. It's
0: been a while. And that was... A podcast with Dr. Diane Simeone, who you work very closely with. Yes. Um, You guys are kind of the tag team duo here at NYU for the Pancreas Center, uh, Pancreatic Cancer Center, along with some other key folks. So I don't want to offend anyone. Yes. Uh, But we had you guys on a while back. And we talked about the early detection and some of the things that you guys were doing here at NYU, and and we we did get into a little bit of what you do, right? Um, but this episode is really going to be all about
1: what all you do. mine, all yours.
0: <laughs> so for our listeners at home, and what we always do with our guests, and this is kind of your opportunity to share with our listeners, which we've got a pretty vast audience, and. You know, you can, and this is your opportunity to kind of share your background, your experience. You can get into as much as you want to share or as little as I always tell our guests. And we'll kind of go from
1: there. Fair enough. Okay. So I've been a cancer genetic counselor for coming up on 20... two years now. Um, And when I started my career, it was mostly uh, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer and BRCA1 and 2 testing all the time. Um, Then I moved to the University of Michigan around 2007 to join the Cancer Genetics Clinic there, where I was doing everything that was not breast and ovarian cancer, so all of the other types of cancers. And it was at that point... Um, somewhere around probably oh seven o eight o nine maybe that we um started a new service delivery sort of model there at the University of Michigan, where we had uh, a couple of clinics within the cancer center that were multidisciplinary clinics, where the idea was, if people were coming, um, there were lots of patients who would come to the University of Michigan from relatively far away. And the idea was for people to be able to see all of the relevant professionals that they needed to see in one visit. And we thought that genetics was a key component for some of those cancers. And so we started, instead of having patients come specifically to the genetics clinic, if they were there to see all of their colon cancer doctors or their uh, endocrine cancer doctors or their pancreatic cancer doctors, that they would be able to see a genetic counselor at that same time, so to have somebody embedded in the clinic um, to make that service available to people. And so that was when I first started working with Dr. Simeone. And we started to realize that it was a a really important piece of care for people with pancreatic cancer. And then also the sort of um, side population, which was not really her main focus at the time, of people who had high risk and were worried about their family history and wanted to know what they should be doing for screening. So that was sort of how it all got started. It was not my main focus at that time, um, but was a piece of, of what I was doing.
0: So why did you get into genetics as a whole, like coming out of school? Uh, Is there something there that kind of, I, I'd love to hear that and we'll just take it back a little bit.
1: Sure, yeah, no, that's fine. So um, I was a science nerd um, from high school on probably. So I knew I wanted to be in life sciences somewhere. And I think like many you know, 18, 19 year olds, just took a little bit of time to figure out where exactly. Um, I worked in a basic science lab Um, as an undergraduate student and quickly realized that I liked talking too much to be behind the bench. Um, I liked working with people. Um, And I was on a pre-medicine pathway, but didn't really want the doctor lifestyle. Um, And I was kind of a late discoverer of genetic counseling as a profession. I hadn't even heard of it until probably the beginning of my senior year, of college, which is sort of late to (laughs) figure out that where might be where you want to go. Better late than never. Better late than never. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, that was, it just sort of clicked for me that it was, um, I was really enjoying my human genetics course, which was where I heard of it, um, for the first time and yeah, applied to grad schools and that was that. And then cancer genetics, I think, um, For me, a couple of things, I, you know, like many people who uh, take an interest in this area, have some history in my own family of various types of cancers. Um, And I think for me, the other thing about working in cancer genetics that has been really uh, important and what I often tell my patients is, you know, what makes it possible for me to keep coming to work every day is because I think, doing this type of testing in for patients and families, um, we can do something with this information. So there are things we can act on um, that make a difference and that can protect people's health. And that's not true in some of the other um, disciplines within genetics. So I worked, for example, um, in a pediatric clinic for a few years. And really, frequently, what you're doing there is putting a name to a problem um, and giving people an answer about why things may be happening but there isn't necessarily anything that can be done beyond giving that information and so i think um, one of the things that really appeals to me and, and has kept me in cancer genetics is that we can we can use the information that we find to do some good for people in these families
0: it's like unraveling the puzzle that is cancer, in, yes. in essence, right?
1: Yeah, and of course, I, you know, I think that's another um, <clears throat> key piece for me. Is um, this is not a profession where I can ever get bored. There is always mm. new stuff happening. There are always things to be learned and discovered. Um, and you know, I've been doing this long enough now to have had several points in my career where I felt like, wow, we've really, we've really done a thing here. What are we going to do from here? And you know. Of course, there's always more to there's be done else, and more yeah. to learn. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that's something with uh, that's happened. I think with maybe technology, though. I mean, we yeah. look over the last ten years and how like personalized medicine was such a big topic like five years ago, right? And and yep. and, and I think it's still in certain circles. In certain circles, I guess within the science community. But it's still fascinating, you know, what technology
1: has done and what we've learned and how
0: much we still have to learn. So it's oh, for sure. I think we're still
1: scratching the surface with a lot of this stuff. For sure. It's really amazing to um to look at well, I think one thing that you point out there is uh, you know the the advances in computing have really had to happen to allow the advances in science that we've yeah. had, there wouldn't we wouldn't be here without that. Um, but even to think back, you know, I'm not that old, but to <laughs> think back to what I was doing in college in the lab, it's like the tech equivalent of butter churning. Yeah. You know, when I talk to yeah. students now, like we were sequencing by hand with, you know, gels and x-ray, and it's just ridiculous how... Completely outdated that was, or even you know, PCR was invented in the eighties. Yeah, that's not that long ago. So it's the the pace at which things have been changing is really um, almost hard to wrap your brain around.
0: I think we had Anirban Mietra on the podcast episode not too long ago, and I know he talked about. He was saying like years ago, it took. I think I forget the time, and I don't want to misspeak here, mm-hmm. but it was like this. Okay exorbitant amount of time to gene sequence. And now he's oh, yeah. like, we do it overnight. Like, or like it, right. it, 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 in, yes. instantaneously, you know, like his lab yeah. this person in the lab who does it can do it like within like a couple of
1: hours. Right. I think the first genome took uh, a few years. Yeah. And that was, like I said, that was like the beginning of, I was practicing as a genetic counselor when that was happening. Um, but was very early in my career. And everybody thought, okay, this will be, like I said, we're going to do this and this yeah. will be a big deal. And now we do, you know.
0: Like instantaneously it yep. happens. Hundreds
1: yeah. of genomes yeah. every day, all the time. It's so Thousands fascinating. Thousands of genomes, yes.
0: It's crazy. So let's fast forward from where you started, but then go back to where you talked about, you met Diane in like right. 2009, 2008. So were you kind of studying or had experience with pancreatic cancer, or was Diane kind of that first experience?
1: So that working in the clinic there um, was probably my first real experience um, taking care of patients and families with pancreatic cancer in any meaningful way, right? So, So prior to that, again, largely people with breast cancer or with ovarian cancer, sometimes who had family history, but- With the
0: BRCA mutation. Exactly right, Yeah. So w- would it be, suffice to say, that you were kind of a BRCA specialist prior to like joining Diane's team? Like That what was what I knew really the your-
1: most about, yeah, coming in um, to my job at Michigan. And then I had a lot more exposure there to lots of other types of syndromes, and then also a lot more direct interaction. Um, with people dealing with pancreatic cancer.
0: So we can give Diane credit as we're sitting here on the other side. She's probably listening. She might have a glass. We're on the other side of her uh, office. So she probably has one of those glasses, <clears throat> like a, a drinking glass on the wall. Like Could, listening. Be. Could, Could be. Could be. I doubt she is, but that's, that's just a joke. <laughs> we'll know when we leave the office if she was listening. So we credit Diane for you being involved in the pancreatic cancer space.
1: For sure. She was a big advocate um, for having genetics presence in the clinic. And I think... Um, really recognized pretty early on that it was gonna be an important piece of of what needed to happen there.
0: That's so fascinating if you think. So you start with her and you said oh eight, oh nine. Yep. And here we are in 2019. Right. I gotta watch myself here. I mm-hmm. almost said 2016. So 10 years later. Yeah. And this is really what I think the the NIH guideline this year changed to require that all patients who are sick with the disease or come in, get genetic testing, but it's like 10 years of foresight to say like, hey, this is gonna be, and I think this is kind of now where like genetics, I think over the last two years has become such an integral part of managing the disease.
1: Right, yeah. Which
0: is so fascinating. Again,
1: so many uh, things falling into place that didn't necessarily seem related while they were happening to lead us to this point. So I think, um, one of those things being next-gen sequencing. So yeah. a huge shift in the technology that we use to, to sequence genes um, that made everything much faster and much less expensive. And that completely upended uh, how, how we're able to work, work in, yeah. in genetics. So I think that was one piece. Another piece um, was the patent on BRCA1 and 2 testing, um, the the company that had the patent lost their case, and that opened things up in the field in a way that um, helped really bring the cost down. So that was happening. Um, another thing that was happening was, again, what, with nextgen becoming available, the um, various projects sequencing tumors themselves got off the ground. And um, with that, a lot more people recognizing, oh, as we sequence these tumors, it helps to sequence normal tissue at the same time and finding that, oh, a lot more people have inherited mutations than we may be previously appreciated. So there were like several things happening separate from each other, right, that all come together to bring us to a point of saying, okay, we can apply this uh, technology in a more broad way and it's not too surprising that the more we test, the more we find Find, that we wouldn't have previously recognized.
0: So amazing. I want to take like kind of a quick jump here. So in full disclosure, you did come over from the University of Michigan with Diane to NYU. Uh, When she decided to leave Michigan and come and help build what's been built here so far and what's being built here at NYU. So for those years prior to coming here, you guys were kind of building something similar to what you guys have started here at Michigan would be fair to say? like, yes. So during that time, you're kind of still doing high risk?
1: Yes, yes. So I was doing some other non-pancreas things, um, but we had just really sort of reached a point. Again, I think um, Diane was recognizing there was work to be done, and she um, wanted a more uh, effort than we had available to give her from the sort of pool of cancer genetic counselors. Um, and she had said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make an investment so we can have someone working more in a more focused way on the clinical piece of this, but also on research projects related to pancreatic cancer. And, uh, I had agreed to do that with her at Michigan and then, uh, her move happened. So it was sort of a natural, uh, step to say, okay, we've, we've started it here. Let's, uh, let's continue the work.
0: Where are you from originally?
1: Western Pennsylvania. Okay. Yep.
0: So you decide to follow Diane here (laughs) to NYU. You picked up for listeners home. Jessica's got a family, kids, and husband, so a spouse. So you decide to make the trek across – I mean, it's halfway across the country. It's a big jump. Yeah, it's a big jump. So that's big.
1: It was uh, was big. Um, I think there were – lots of reasons why it was appealing to me at this particular point in my career and um, i thought the potential for what we were trying to do was big um and so far we're moving in the right direction and i'm um, having a good time doing it
0: well, we're glad you came. Yeah. Let's put it that way uh, here at Project Purple, and I'm personally glad you came. So let's shift gears a little bit. Sure. And thank you for sharing that information about your experience and your past. Let's talk about genetic testing. And so we have a pretty vast audience. Okay. And there might be a lot of people that listen to the podcast that have no clue what genetic testing is, first of all. Okay. So let's talk about that and then I sure. want to talk about like what's involved cuz people think testing and you know that can go from you know diagnostic testing of you know an ultrasound an MRI uh, EUS to something very simple as just a blood test. Right. So, let's talk first about what is the genetic testing? what is what what is it made up of, and how does that work? And then we can kind of go into like what what that actually involves.
1: Sure. yeah, okay. So um I think this is another thing that has shifted um, fairly dramatically over the past few years. So the current state of things, I would say, is uh, if we're going to do genetic testing, for, uh, so let's, we'll say for a patient with pancreatic cancer, because you've already touched on that is now a, a national guideline and a published recommendation. We know that somewhere around 10% of people diagnosed with pancreatic cancer carry a gene, an inherited gene um, that's relevant for risk for themselves or for other people in their family. And so to find that type of a genetic change or mutation, um, usually we need a tube of blood or there are other ways you can get a DNA sample. There are saliva kits and cheek swabs, other ways. to. Get, we need DNA um, and that can either come from your white cells in a tube of blood or from cheek cells that we can get uh, in that way. We send it off to the lab and what we're asking them to do is look for changes in a gene or genes that would make the gene not work. The way that it's supposed to. And when we find something like that, uh, where a gene is not working properly because of a change in the gene, um, that can be related to causing risk for not just pancreatic cancer, but frequently for other types of cancers as well. So currently, um, when we send off the DNA sample, usually we're asking the lab to look at a list of genes that can cause cancer risk, and the length of that list depends a little bit on the situation and the patient and family. But usually, it's somewhere between probably 35 genes up to as many as 84 genes um, related to cancer risk. Now, on that list, there are maybe 15 that are currently definitively linked Linked. to risk for pancreatic cancer. But one of the things that I um, often talk to my patients about is that, uh, again, I've been doing this long enough to know that sometimes we're not as smart as we think we are in the scientific community and that I'm not convinced that there aren't further connections um, with some of the other genes on that list that might be unraveled over time. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, another piece of the puzzle there is that we know that there are... Families out there with two or more people in the family who have had pancreatic cancer where we test for all the currently known stuff and it's all normal. So, uh, you know, I think we know there are genetic puzzle pieces that are still undiscovered as well. So um, that that list of 15 or 18 definitively linked genes, I think, is incomplete.
0: So. Take a step back. Sure. When you do the testing, I know I've heard this, uh, and maybe folks listening at home have heard this from a scientific or from a doctor, when they say full panel. Yes. So the full panel is how many genes then? Is that the whole 80, or could it be 26? I've heard 26 a lot. Is it-
1: It depends. depends? Yeah. So, and this is um, one of the things that we, as a community, and, and maybe we're going to talk about the consortium a little bit, yeah. but- um, one of the things that uh, we just had a, a phone call the other day, so we have several collaborating centers um, that are going to be working with us on looking at questions around uh, genetics and early detection. And this was one of the things that came up on a call the other day was maybe we should all just talk about what panels we're doing. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we need to come up with a standard that we all agree is the the right way to go because right now it's all over the place. So there
0: isn't a standardization. It's not a standard. So I think that's important for our listeners because I've heard this many times, Jess, where people have said, well, I went and did testing and I always say, okay. And they say, well, it came back negative. And I say, well, the next question is, did they do a full panel, right. or what did they? What test? did they do? Like, how yes. much testing did they do? Right. And so, and I'm going to just go back with the same point here mm-hmm. is you mentioned before it's a DNA sample, and this right. is something that you and I have talked about. But you know, there's a lot of popularity now with these 23andMe's, the right. Ancestry.com. Technically, there's like a DNA sample that's given, but. You know, we've. I think we've mentioned, I, we mentioned. We were talking about this offline. About mm-hmm. I had a friend who was BRCA positive. She did a full panel test, or she went through Marriott, mm-hmm. which is one of the larger labs that yep. does the the genetic testing that a lot of facilities use. But then she did 23andMe, and it came back negative for BRCA right you know, so i think that for listeners at home i think th- this is kind of an important it discussion is. because i think they have it's just like anything else you always have to advocate for yourself and i guess in this case if you don't know you to answer to ask the right questions you're not going to know right so Correct. i think it's important though for listeners at home to ask the right questions so should they if they are going to a center or they are going to buy a 23andMe or one of these over-the-counter. Because there's been a lot of companies now that right. are getting into this game yes. of genetic testing at all levels. Should they ask if BRCA is covered under that panel? Is that what they should be asking? Or what should our listeners be doing? Yeah. Or should they ask their the counselor, the nurse, wherever they're going in the center and they're assuming that they're going to get – Full genetic testing, as I say here with air quotes, mm-hmm. because I think that's kind of the perception that everyone has. Like, I've talked to families and they're like, oh, we did genetic testing. And I say, well, did they do how many? You know, what was the full thing? Was it a full panel? Was it 20? Was it 40? Was it 50? Yeah.
1: Yeah. These are issues that we run into all the time, um, even for people who come in to see us in the yeah. clinic. And maybe I've had some stuff done, but, uh, you know, we always need to see the full report. And review it and figure out if there's anything further to do so the other piece i would add that confuses things um, is we'll ask you know for a person who's had pancreatic cancer did they have genetic testing and there's a lot of confusion about genetic testing on the tumor correct right which is not the same as genetic testing on a normal mm blood sample. And so we'll run into that too, where people will say, yes, he had genetic testing.
0: But it was on the tumor. Correct.
1: And then we get the report and it's just the tumor and not not the blood sample. So let's try to take those- And that's important
0: though for our listeners at home, because the tumor can be a different genetic makeup than the actual patient's genetic makeup possibly.
1: Correct. So uh, an example there would be Um, you can see BRCA mutations, for example, Mm -hmm. in a pancreas tumor, um, and they may or may not be inherited. And the only way to prove that it's inherited is to look in the blood Blood. sample and show that it is also in the blood sample.
0: And that's critical because we do know with most, uh, I believe with BRCA patients, Mm -hmm. that um, there is a treatment protocol Right, that works better than the atypical treatment protocol. Right.
1: So that's uh, one of the reasons why it's important to do those tests for patients who have pancreatic cancer, because we're starting to learn that there are subsets of patients who will respond differently because of the biology of the tumor Tumor. itself. And then sometimes those findings are also relevant for other people in their family.
0: So... Have you seen in your experience, someone who has a tumor that is BRCA, but their DNA is not positive for BRCA? It's published. It's published.
1: Yeah, it's out there. Mm -hmm.
0: That's kind of fascinating. Yeah. So then I would assume if the doctor doesn't do a needle biopsy of that tumor Mm -hmm. and just relies on that DNA sample, then they are in essence not, because then that patient would probably fare better on the BRCA treatment, if they right. don't know if that tumor is BRCA.
1: Right. So that's I, you know, I think the the only way to know for sure what's going on is to do both. both yeah, tests. clearly. If there's a
0: yeah. disease is present. Yeah. Right. Which is fat I've never heard that. That's fascinating. Yeah. I just learned something new. Yeah. Well, that's it, that's a very powerful. Fact though, that for our listeners at home, especially because I mean, you know, that I think nowadays, whenever we get calls, and I do some referrals for friends and family, and I always ask the first question, Hey, did they do genetic Mm -hmm. testing? And it's funny because the funny part of it is I always get the response, Yeah, they biopsied the tumor. But then I just would assume that that is the same as the DNA that's in the blood. So nope. now I've got to say, hey, okay, they did the tumor, but did they do your blood as well? Right.
1: And the the opposite is also true. I, I we run into people who assume again, you know, based the on a tumor is. finding. Um, in fact, I got a, a question about this the other day about a. A CDKN2A mutation. It wasn't a pancreatic cancer, but yeah. it's not uncommon for that gene to be mutated in certain types of cancers, um, and not be hereditary. So you don't know unless you, you look. Do at it. It. Yeah, we've had ATM same way. So yeah. we've had people with ATM in the tumor where the oncologist came back to me like, "I thought you told me the germline was negative, and yeah. it, was, it was, and it still is."
0: But the tumor was the possible. tumor
1: has a mutation. Yeah.
0: So cool. And for our listeners at home, so ATM is, what will we say, a sister or cousin or a a relative of BRCA?
1: (laughs) It is a gene that works in the same pathway. Um, It is a gene that is linked to pancreatic cancer risk for sure. So again, we know maybe eight or 9% of pancreatic cancers have uh, a problem with ATM in the tumor. And we know in some families with two or more people with pancreatic cancer, we find ATM genes. Um, But we don't know, you know, for a carrier of an ATM mutation, we're still working on figuring out what exactly is the lifetime risk for pancreatic cancer. So it's a it's.
0: An unknown. It's a
1: gene that but, definitely has something to do with pancreatic cancer. But still a lot of unknowns. Still a lot of work to do, yeah.
0: So for our listeners at home, and I wanna to get to like the testing and what is actually involved. And I also
1: don't wanna to forget to come back to the 23 Me question. Correct. We got a little bit sidetracked. Yeah, a little so, bit sidetracked, uh, yeah. but
0: I, you, we just mentioned ATM. Mm-hmm. So w- what are the gene mutations that are responsible? And because this podcast is mostly about pancreatic cancer, we do go off on other topics from time to time, but uh-huh. we mentioned okay. BRCA. Right. ATM and BRCA one and two. Correct.
1: That's a very important point. I think um, that both BRCA one and BRCA two, um, I have seen in patients with pancreatic cancer and in families with pancreatic cancer. So it definitely BRCA two more frequently, um, but I think we can't ignore BRCA one. One.
0: Correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. ATM. Correct. Lynch syndrome. Right, Which is a gene mutation, not just because it has syndrome behind it, correct?
1: So there are five genes that can cause Lynch Lynch syndrome, Syndrome. and that one is best known for causing risk for colon cancer and uterine cancer. Uh, But pancreatic cancer can be part of that picture as well. That's also one that's treatment relevant for people with pancreatic cancer. So it's an important one, although it's not common, an important one for us to find.
0: Mm -hmm. And then there's- PALB2
1: is also another one that is in that same pathway with BRCA1 and two.
0: So these are just a handful of the genes that have been identified that are at high risk. If you don't have the disease, if you carry these genes, right. to be in some side of in in some sort of screening or early detection protocol program, which we'll right. talk about. Yes, um, but those are the ones that science has identified. That have a link to pancreatic yes. cancer and other cancers. Yes, as well. and
1: CDKN2A is okay. the other one. I would say that's big. That's one that is related to risk for melanoma. Yep, and pancreatic cancer. p16 is the other name that you sometimes hear for that one.
0: Beautiful. All right, let's go back to the twenty-three yes. main question. Yes. So what should people be asking?
1: Yeah. So I think um, the key point there is I think it is um, important for patients and families to know that um, a test like 23andMe is not the same as a medical grade test Mm -hmm. that you would get for having a family history of cancers. So I think um, the the key thing with 23andMe and BRCA that causes confusion is that uh, that 23andMe test looks specifically for the there are three mutations in BRCA1 and 2 that are uh, relatively common in people whose ancestry is Eastern European and Jewish. So if you are part of that group of people and you do 23andMe, um, not because you have family history, but just because you're curious, Mm -hmm. that is a reasonable thing. Um, But if you are not Eastern European and Jewish and you're actually interested in genetic testing because you have family history of cancer, it's not a complete test. So you're not getting full coverage of of BRCA1 and 2, you're getting just those specific mutations, which would explain your friend's Correct. story probably. Yeah. She had a different mutation. And so it's not something that 23andMe looks for specifically.
0: And this is too, and I feel like we're beating up on 23andMe a little bit, which, well, we, which, I, well, I brought it up, so I can take the blame for okay. that. But I think the other, this is a very important question or very, very important point here is that you look at any genetic test from the medical standpoint to mm-hmm. ensure that they're doing a full medical background on the DNA sample.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, cause there's
0: a lot of other companies now that have come to market, sure. right? Like I, I know there's people that send the swap kits in the mail and like, you know, yeah. there's all sorts of things f- that are coming out of the woodwork. I don't
1: think 23andMe uh, says that they're doing anything different. No. I think it's just confusing yeah. for patients. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't, I think 23 Me does what they say, say they're they do. doing. Yeah, exactly. But it's just not what people think it is, if well, that makes sense.
0: I think one of the things that I've seen from folks that I've talked to too, I think in this is, you know, what we can talk about this is the pricing, you know, has mm-hmm. been in the past thousands and thousands right. of dollars. And now naturally we talked a lot about technology already, but technology has been able to drive that down, right? A lot. And I think what 23andMe, I, I'm, Going to go on a limb, it's probably like $23.
1: I don't actually know how much it is, and I <laughs> haven't a joke, done it, but, surprisingly. <laughs> uh,
0: but I know, like, Ancestry.com, I think, you know, uh, I think my wife did that for one of our children for uh, Christmas, I think, last year. Uh-huh. And I think it was, you know, it wasn't expensive, it was relatively bucks, inexpensive. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I think that sometimes also, I think for, for those folks listening at home, I think something that we want, just want to say and put out there that I think in the past, yes, genetic testing has become very expensive. Insurance would typically not cover it, but that has changed quite a bit, right. the pricing and then also the insurance aspect of it.
1: Yes. Um, yes. A lot of those things have changed. So I think um, for people who are concerned about their family history of cancer, and that's their reason for doing genetic testing. I think 23 Me is like uh, more of a general curiosity thing Correct. than a I need medical no, information, information because yeah. of specific stuff in my family. So if you are interested in genetic information because of a specific thing in your family, um, you can still get genetic testing for a reasonable price. So, uh, and I would... I, yes, I'm biased, but I would strongly encourage you to at least check in with a genetics clinic. Um, you don't even need to live near one now. So there are services that are available by phone. Some of the genetic testing laboratories will work with your primary care doctor and provide genetic counseling through their service on the back end if something is identified. So there's a lot of things that have happened to try to reduce the barriers for people who can't you know, get to a clinic or don't have a genetic counselor near them or don't have coverage to do it. Um, And then the other thing is for my patients who either insurance doesn't cover it or they have a big deductible, um, there are legitimate testing labs with medical grade testing that's available for about $250. Um, And even those labs frequently have pretty good programs for patients where they offer Discounts based on income that are fairly generous, where they have uh, payment plans for patients. I think there are companies out there who have philosophically said uh, the right thing to do is to make this available to as many people as we can and to try to not let um, finances be a barrier as much as possible. So it's, I would say, um, we're able to get things done at an out of pocket price that is. Acceptable to most of our patients, probably ninety five percent of the time, which is a big improvement over oh, how it used to be. Yeah,
0: and I think too, I, I experienced this with my mom when she was going through breast cancer the second time. I mean, she really sat with the nurse navigator mm-hmm. in the oncology office, and you know, was a full you know, a half hour interview, Mm -hmm. you know, in order to make sure that insurance did qualify and pay. And I remember when I went through my experience, um, so so very similar, you know, I sat down with the nurse navigator, the genetic counselor there, and, you know, she answered, she asked all the right questions to make sure that, you know, insurance cover. So I think, you know, for listeners at home, I think that the point here is if you go to a center of excellence, and they have a genetic counselor, whether it's here at NYU, which we will provide information on how people can learn more and get in touch with you if that's a need, mm-hmm. or one of the other centers that we're working with in the Precede Consortium, mm-hmm. or even you know a major cancer center, the odds are that they, if they have a genetic counselor, they know how to kind of, let's say, navigate yes. through that system. And if there isn't an insurance, you know, if the insurance isn't going to pay for it, there are many ways to get there. Yes. Um, and there's also groups. I know, you know, yep. we, there's other charities that help with genetic counseling and stuff like that. So point here is people should not be fearful of the cost that's associated to get the proper testing because there's many ways of achieving
1: that goal. Absolutely. And the, I think um, there are still lots of people out there who knew, uh, you know, back in the day, it cost. Almost four thousand dollars just to do mm-hmm. Braca one and two, and those days are gone. gone yeah. So I think that's an, I, p- many of our patients are really surprised when we tell them oh, we can we can get this for much less money, um, and I think you're right. Sometimes that is a barrier for people. Yeah. So. I, I think that's
0: just knowledge, and I think people, you know, yeah, it was expensive. It was. And I think maybe people originally went into it. And then saw like the sticker shock, but yeah. it's changed, and it's changed pretty quickly. I think, you know? very
1: quickly in the yeah. last
0: couple years, it's yes. been driven, and I think it's going to possibly, well, we'll see if it'll go even lower. You know, where I it think, might. you know, with technology and yep. some of the the newer companies that are really trying to make an effort into the genetic space as a whole, not just for pancreatic cancer or BRCA. Yes, I want to ask you this question: to do proper, and this is personal opinion, um, okay. to do proper genetic sequencing. What's the best method? Blood, DNA, swab—they're
1: all validated. So I think um, if you are working with a, a lab that offers a medical-grade test, um, in fact, I was just talking to one of my patients about this earlier this week. I typically get a blood sample from my patients because I work in a center where I have a phlebotomist, a person who, a professional person who can draw blood for me Mm -hmm. right there on the floor. So it's easy for my patients. They just get a blood draw on their way out the door. Um, We don't ever run into problems with, you know, quantity of DNA. So it's easy. But I know there are a lot of genetic counselors who work in a place where they may not have somebody there to draw blood and many of them will use the saliva kits or the cheek swabs and the labs that offer that service have all done the work before they started offering it mm-hmm. to prove that it's valid and it's fine so i think um you know there's no reason to say a saliva kit is less good <laughs> than a than, blood than sample a blood. yeah so they're yeah they've gone through um work to prove that it's equivalent and, and it validates yeah. yeah
0: so for the listeners at home it's not an invasive test here i mean a blood draw yeah. is pretty simple pretty simple um, or a saliva swab is fairly simple as yep. well i mean you're just squishing it S- in there spitting a kit yeah spitting yep. a kit um so the, there shouldn't be any concern from anyone i, I know sometimes people ask that in and it and I kind of have to take a step back because they just don't know right, right. so they, they think like it's this evasive process or yeah. like it's it's an all-day process it's literally can take as quick as five minutes you know yep. how, how much they can or how long it takes them to get a vial of
1: blood or how it's many vials. Quick. yeah it's pretty uh-huh. quick
0: so they do that testing yes i know it usually takes like four to six weeks
1: a couple of weeks yep
0: to do the they get the results you get the results and then if you're positive for one of the gene mutations, um, what should be the next step? And I'm kind of shifting gears here, going kind of a little bit forward here mm-hmm. in terms of where we are right now with the center and what you're doing day to day. So if we have people that, um, and and where I wanna take this, Jess, mm-hmm. because I think there's, uh, there's a lot of things that have, have come from people that I know that have gone testing. One of them, there's usually typically three responses. They're positive for a gene mutation. Right. So what do they do? Right. They're negative. Right. So now they're done. Like they don't feel that they need to get tested. And then there's this like middle, I kind of monkey in the middle, Mm -hmm. these variances. Right. So I want to talk a little bit first here about those
1: variances. Okay.
0: So what should people who have these variances? Well, first of all, what is a variance?
1: Sure. Okay. So let's talk about possible test results. Um, So, again, I I mentioned earlier um, in the discussion that whenever we send off a DNA sample for genetic testing, what we're asking the lab to do is essentially look at the spelling of a gene and you're looking for spelling changes, differences in how the gene is spelled. Um, Sometimes you find a spelling change that makes it clearly turn into, again, keeping with this analogy, a word that doesn't make sense anymore, right? So you have a spelling change. It completely messes up the message of what's trying to happen. Um, And those are the kind where the lab can say, "Okay, this is a positive result. This is a change in a gene that clearly causes disease, and this is or risk, I should say, for disease. And this is something where you're going to need to act. A negative or normal result means they didn't find any variations in spelling in the genes that would be problematic. So that's a normal result. And the in-betweeners are people where the lab says, okay, we found a change in a gene in the spelling that makes it different from normal, but it doesn't necessarily cause a problem with the message. So... You know, uh, an example here would be there are some words that, you know, in British English, they, they add letters, right? So color has a U in it, and we don't use a U in color. It's the same word. It doesn't change the meaning. And anybody who's an English speaker can see that word and say, yes, I know what that means. So some uh, variants of uncertain significance are, are that that's it. It's just a change in the spelling and it doesn't actually cause any trouble. The issue is we don't have a functional test to be able to tell the difference. So when the lab reports a spelling change as a variant of uncertain significance, that just means we don't have enough data Data, to tell the difference. And so we just have to leave it in this in-between category. Many of those eventually turn out to be harmless Mm -hmm. Um, And so for that reason, typically when we have a finding like that, what we will tell patients and families is we should not use this uncertain result to make any decisions about what we do for you medically. We should, if it's uncertain, we should not, um, you know, make important decisions like preventive mastectomy Mm -hmm. on the basis of an uncertain finding.
0: Should those and I get two questions. Mm-hmm. So someone who is of uncertain in this variance, yep. would you recommend if they have a very strong family history of the disease to be in a screening protocol?
1: So then, right. So I think the point there is um, for a person who has a strong family history.
0: Let, and let's define strong family history. Because sure. I think that that can maybe leave some of our listeners at home going, yep. hmm, what's strong?
1: Two Two or more more family members with pancreatic cancer. And I would say if there are two or more people in your family with pancreatic cancer, regardless of how they are connected to each other, Mm -hmm. it's probably worth having a conversation with a screening center who can look at your family history and at your medical history and really come up with a plan um, for you. So for people with a strong family history who have a negative, a normal test results or have a variant of uncertain significance, then we would say we should make our screening decisions based on your family history alone without factoring in that uncertain finding. And for many of those people, that means we screen anyway. Anyway, yeah. Yeah.
0: And then the other thing, and this comes up quite often, someone had genetic testing 5 years ago yes. 10 years ago yep. and they go oh, I didn't test positive for anything I'm good. Yeah. Should they be retested or how often maybe should people be retested because I know I mean there's so much happening, right? Yeah. I mean it's it seems like almost like I would say like annually but it's almost like daily like something new is coming out and I know we've had um We had uh, Sahir Nissim.
1: I was gonna say that's, um, yeah, that was a big- uh, On our podcast uh, and he
0: was talking about these like crazy variances about- you know, stuff. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so like he's like, there's so much that's happening. So what is kind of, I mean, I I, I would ask, like, is there a standardization to say like, hey, if you tested negative for any gene mutation, but you have a family history of disease, Mm -hmm. in this case, pancreatic cancer, should you get tested genetically every five years, every ten years?
1: Um, so this is another reason why I encourage people to make a connection with a center um, mm-hmm. where there is, you know, genetics available to them as as part of what's and happening. There's thirty
0: four worldwide that we know 34,
1: of. Thirty four, right? That are that are part of our group. Um, and I think, you know, the key point there is um, if you're doing this as part of a center, then we're all learning together and using that data to help drive things forward. Um, it's it's hard to put a number on when retesting should happen because it's hard to sort of predict where things will go. Um,
0: Would it be fair to say if I had genetic testing 10 years ago? Yep.
1: You need updated testing. You need updated testing. Uh, Because uh, 10 years ago, we would have probably done BRCA1 and 2 and called it a day. Day, yeah. Right? And now we know there is a whole list of things. And I've had that happen with at least one family.
0: So you've seen Um, it personally where- Yeah, they
1: had an ATM mutation. 10 years ago, they were clean. They had normal BRCA1 and 2 testing, which was like the right thing to do for the time that it was done. Um, And that wasn't what was causing the problem in their family. And then we found it.
0: fascinating. Yeah.
1: So I think, again, this is one of the reasons why whenever people come in uh, to the clinic, we say, let's take a look at your report. Bring us a copy of your genetic testing. Let's see what was done. And then we can talk about whether or not there's something that needs to be updated.
0: That's so wild because, I mean, I just had a conversation with a family and the mom had lost her mom. And she's like, Hey, I had testing 10 years ago. I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, they came back negative. And I was like, "Mm, there's been a lot that's changed, you know, it might be a good idea. So it really comes down to, I think from, you know, what I've listened to so far, the quality of the test, or maybe not the quality, because that I I don't want to put fear out there that right. people have had genetic testing. It's I guess it's what we talked about is how in-depth that testing was. Right,
1: so I think that's an important point, not that people had a test that was wrong. Wrong, it just- It was right, yeah. it was just uh, not- as thorough, thorough yeah, uh, or didn't include all of the genes that we would look at now if people came in today to the clinic versus if they came in 10, 10 years, years ago.
0: So the thoroughness of the test. But then also now we have to factor in these genes that now have been discovered. It,
1: that exactly, and the genes that we just that, didn't, we wouldn't have known to look at them ten years ago. Yeah, right.
0: And the genes now, if we fast forward, let's say we had a crystal ball here and we look ten years ahead, there'll be right. another, possibly another set of genes For that sure. we haven't seen over the last twenty years because we'll be ten years forward. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the other thing we're hoping we'll be smarter about, too, is that in addition to these, uh, you know, we've been talking about spelling changes in some of these key um, cancer pathway genes that we know can cause um, risk and are inherited in a 50-50 way in families and, you know, the associated risk is relatively high. But the other thing that I think we'll have a better handle on is, um, a, a growing area where people are interested in common variations in genes that might actually modify risk. So this sort of concept, and and this makes sense if you think about it. Uh, you know, we know, for example, BRCA two causes risk for pancreatic cancer, but most BRCA two carriers don't get pancreatic cancer, um, and we know that there are some families we take care of. That have a specific BRCA2 mutation where maybe there's three people in that family with pancreatic cancer, and other families that have that same BRCA mutation, and nobody has pancreatic cancer. And so, why is that? why, right? Okay. What's the difference? And I think one of the pieces of that puzzle is going to be variations in other genes. And so, again, we don't know yet what those are. So for people listening, there's you're not missing out on something, no. but there's research happening. Um, and we're interested in trying to figure that out. And I think, you know, in 10 years, we'll probably have a better handle on that.
0: Well, I, I think just listening to what you said about the, the biggest piece of that is to get families involved, right? right? Like we need the family. So for those families listening at home, this is, I think probably the the biggest message here is if you have, and we're going to share how you get involved, but if you have a family history of this disease, Mm -hmm. you really need, I mean, I can't stress the urgency, not that you need to do it tomorrow or Monday, I should say, or when this podcast airs the next day. But you really should seek out professional genetic counseling, hopefully at one of the 34 centers within the pre Consortium, mm-hmm. uh, to get testing because that's what really we need, i.e. The, the scientific community, is we need families that have this gene mutation so that we can validate and learn more and potentially understand why that happens, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, you and I are philosophically in the same place on this, that this is – a team effort between, um, those of us who work on the medical side of things and the patients and families who are impacted by this, that we are going to get nowhere unless we are all working together. Um, and I think that, uh, one of the things I think is really important is that, um, people, understand that this is an important thing that they can do. I think lots of, of patients and families impacted by pancreatic cancer feel like, ah, I want, uh, you know, I want to do something, but I don't know what, what? to do. Yeah. And I think um, just having yourself counted, right? Making sure that, okay, somebody knows my family is out here and is keeping track of what's happening um, is important and is useful.
0: Well, that's pretty powerful what you just said. I, I see it from my point of view because we always say, like, you know, stay involved or be involved. And I think sometimes people feel like when I say that coming from the philanthropic side, it mm-hmm. means money. Right. But that what we're saying here is it doesn't involve money, it actually involves, you know, the DNA and the, the background and the history because I think that's something. And it's also important here for our listeners at home to, if they're listening, when they're listening to this, if you have been impacted by the disease, you know, I, I I see I've seen in the 10 years, like a lot of people, and I get it because the disease is so ravishing. Yeah. Like it just tears families apart. Absolutely. You know, it destroys lives overnight sometimes, which is the bad side of it. Yeah. And a lot of times people don't want to be reminded of that negative.
1: Absolutely.
0: But in this case, we're not asking them for money. So they don't have to, you know, which a lot of people sometimes don't want to give their money yeah. towards whatever or mission. Can't. Or can't, right. right? But here we're just asking for DNA and then, you know, information which could impact thousands of people potentially, right. you know, with just that that simple thing of, you know, giving blood or swabbing or giving a family history so right. we can better understand the disease. So like not to get like really kind of crazy philosophical here, but like mind blowing is like if everyone who's been impacted by the disease just got genetic testing, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the family history, if there is a strong family history, yeah, we would learn, we would be able, we'd have this large insane amount of data that hopefully we can kind of piece together and help. The next generation of people who get
1: the disease—that's the goal. I yeah is f- to let people be counted, yeah, um, which doesn't take
0: anything. Like we're not asking, take, we're not asking for yeah. money. Well, we're we're asking for DNA, so we're we're going to take or some even, DNA.
1: You know, be part of a registry. Yeah, right. Make sure that we know you're out there. Um, and even if you're not, you know, having your screening, we have some patients who have gotten in touch with us who have said, you know, I'm I I don't live near a center, but my doctors here in the community are screening my pancreas. Um, I think that's uh, information that we want to keep track of. So again, you know, any people who are out there doing the screening to take care of themselves, good. I'm glad you're doing something to take care of yourself. Um, But the added piece on there is, you know, be counted in a registry where people can keep track of what's happening. Part of What has, I think, slowed us down in learning about early detection, it's a numbers game, right? So pancreatic cancer is still in the big picture. Uh, Not the most common cancer that we see. 56,000,
0: I think, or 55. Right. right? So So
1: it's not the most common. And the percentage of those then where there's multiple people in the family is even smaller. Smaller, And then as we screen those patients who are at risk in those families, again, it's going to be only a small percentage of them that will ever have a problem in their pancreas. Um, So we need to count as many of them as we can if we really want to ever learn anything about this and make a difference. It's powerful stuff. Yeah. And it's doable. I mean, I think that's, you know, again, where you and I are philosophically similar is we can do this. Um, if we're organized and thoughtful about it, and if we get the word out to patients and families. Again, I think um, there are many people who, despite ha- having gone through an awful experience um, with a family member, really feel like, you know, I want and need something good to come out of this. And helping the, the cause is, is a way to do that.
0: And we will share, I mean, I know this is going to air in November, but the Preseed Consortium, yes. which is a 34 center right now, 34 center worldwide, early detection screening for pancreatic cancer based on this genetic risk or genetic risk, not mm-hmm. just BRCA, but the other right. familial, uh, pancreatic. familial pancreatic yep. cancer. Uh, we will be sharing more information as we get closer to December because we are hoping to launch that yes. uh, in December, early December. So let's just talk about that for a couple minutes here, Jess. About that, and I know you're really been kind of steerheading the genetic piece of this yeah. and, and what that will involve with these 34 centers. Yeah, and I know we've talked a lot about it here already, but uh-huh. let's kind of like maybe summarize and give the audience kind of a little bit of a tease. For
1: sure, it's um, it's really it's really exciting, and I think um, because I have worked in cancer genetics for a long time. Um, as Diane and I thought about, okay, how, you know, again, philosophically we knew and know that the only way we're really going to solve this problem is to get people to work together. Um, and it's been wonderful and gratifying to see how many of our colleagues at major institutions, uh, agree with that idea and really have said, you know, we've been waiting for a, an opportunity to do this and for somebody to um, get it off the ground. So we really wanted to focus on centers um, where there is multidisciplinary care, where patients have access to genetics and there's an organized effort for genetic counseling and testing, and where there's active um, screening going on where there are, you know, gastroenterologists who are familiar with the procedures that need to happen and surgeons who can take care of these patients who need interventions. Um, so these are, you know, the places that are doing it well and doing it right. Um, and recording that information or have the ability to record that information and have the ability to collect samples from patients and families so that we can build something together that none of us would be able to do alone.
0: And so the the centers, there's 34 across mm-hmm. the world, are all coming together to provide patient data right. so that everyone has access to the patient data, right? samples. Um, it will involve high risk, so there will be genetic testing involved um, to identify these high-risk patient populations yep. in these centers. And then every year, the patients will be required to continue to stay in this program mm-hmm. at, at their individual center right. and have a diagnostic test, which we've identified right now as alternating from an EUS endoscopic mm-hmm. ultrasound and an MRI every other year, and they're right. also giving blood.
1: Yep. That's right. So these are, again, people for whom um, the MRI and endoscopic ultrasound are part of the medical care that's Correct. recommended for them. So the care that they're getting isn't research per se, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're getting recommended care. I think the the piece, and I've touched on this earlier, is that for every patient who's doing that, who's already having that for their medical care, we really need to be keeping track of it. And looking at, you know, what are we seeing in these patients and families? And even, you know, I'll give you an an example there. Um, I just went through an exercise of looking at our uh, highest risk patients who are having that follow-up. And we knew that uh, pancreas cysts were probably more common in people with family history than they are. They're already relatively common in the general population, but they're there in probably 40% of our high-risk population. Um, we don't know what that means and it, uh, you know how that relates to risk, but these are the kinds of things that we hope we're going to be able to sort out by looking at this collectively in a large number of people.
0: Well, no one's ever done this, first of all, right? So Not we're pioneering, the scale. Yeah, yeah. the scale, right? And I think just like with anything that's backed by science, you need the data to prove the findings. And like we can say right. here, like, oh yeah, we know that this is happening because of this, but if we don't have the data to back it up, right, then we can't prove it, right? So,
1: and the other thing I think that we want to get away from is, you know, what we've been sort of stuck with is um, one-off stories. Right. So uh, physicians and patients and families who have a, well, here's an example of a cancer that was found early, or here's an example of someone under screening where a cancer wasn't detected. But those sort of one off cases shouldn't drive what we're doing. We need to look at that in the context of the whole picture. Right. And the only yeah. way you can do that is by collecting all the data yeah. on all of the people and looking at it as a whole. As a whole.
0: What do you think, in your professional opinion, where are we in 10 years with genetic testing? Oof. I know that's kind of a, that's a loaded question. It's so
1: hard. I mean, when I think about where we were 10 years ago, it's so hard to to think. I think that, um, I think that it's going to be just more routinely done for all sorts of reasons, um, that I'll have more people coming to me with their testing already completed.
0: And just and he- you Yeah, like here's my
1: report, report. And let's talk about what was found or not found. I think that there'll be more genes identified that we need to deal with. Um, I don't know how much further the cost can go down, but it's, yeah, you know. It's
0: relatively I, inexpensive.
1: Yeah, but it may drop even a little bit further. We'll see. Um,
0: I wonder if we'll see at like CVS or Walgreens if we'll see genetic testing there it like almost like a me. pregnancy test.
1: Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me.
0: Cuz I think I mean I know we focused here on pancreatic cancer, but there's mm-hmm. so much happening and I mentioned it earlier in the in the podcast about personalized medicine, but right. I'm talking about like the whole gamut, like other diseases and not just, you know, immunotherapy has worked amazing you know, in other diseases other than pancreatic cancer. And that's a form of kind of, you know, you're turning on the body's own immune system because of the genetic makeup of that person and that individual. So, you know, it'd be great if it worked for pancreatic cancer, just doesn't right now, but I'm hopeful that that eventually that will happen yeah but people so, are trying
1: to figure that out figure it out yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: um so it'd be interesting to see where you know maybe in 10 years you see them at rite aid or cvs or walgreens um if they're still around or maybe you buy them on amazon quite honestly. yeah
1: i yeah and i think um it's that for for common diseases like cancer and the other place where i think you may see a shift is um genes related to heart disease mm-hmm. risk um I think those are going to be more easily accessible to people, sort of uh, medical community adjacent rather than directly um, through. So we'll see. And there are people certainly studying this um, on a research basis, like how can we reduce barriers to testing for people who want to get it? And I think, you know, the next obvious step is, Well, I think for many of those people, it's people who don't necessarily have any obvious family history, History, but are just prevention minded, right? Or knowledge seeking, um, that it's not unreasonable to figure out a way to do that responsibly.
0: It's exciting stuff.
1: It is. It's cool. I told you I never get bored. Yeah.
0: All right. Last question. And then we're going to give our audience an opportunity to find out more about what you're doing here and how to, how to contact you. What's the biggest myth? with genetic testing that you think we could dispel here on the podcast for listeners
1: at home? Ooh, I feel like you should have given me a, a prep time for this. <laughs> this is why we don't <laughs> get prep
0: time, because it's on the spot.
1: Um, and I'm gonna
0: throw this out. You think yeah. it has to do with like health insurance? Yeah, that was where
1: I was gonna go and with maybe that. maybe
0: life insurance. And life insurance, you know, we're not experts here. And I know I, you and I, I used to be in the life insurance business, and mm-hmm. I will put this on record. I have talked to underwriters and most insurance companies, I'm not gonna say this is, don't take the word of Dino Varelli, but they're not equipped, you know, to look at genetic testing, which I was told.
1: So, and I I will add to that, uh, we had a speaker from the life insurance industry at one of our genetics meetings several years ago, who said, uh, you know, we have always, and will continue to ask questions about your family history, yeah. and we already adjust. You know, Like BRCA carriers were around, Twenty-five years ago, before yeah. we could do testing, or well, I guess I'm. Tr- <laughs> it's more than twenty-five yeah. years that we've. Anyway, thirty years ago, yeah. before we could do testing, uh, life insurance existed and bracket testing didn't, and they were already adjusting based on the early Fam- breast cancer in your family, family history
0: of mortality. Yeah, I believe so. Like so, yeah. if you have, and then that's what something I know people have brought up. Like so, if you lose a, a immediate family member, a a spouse. Um, well, a sibling or a parent. Part at age sixty-five to heart disease or cancer, you're automatically like knocked off that top pedestal down. You know, depending on what age, doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter about the gene testing. Uh But if you don't have that, um, then gene testing, from my understanding, should not come in unless they pull their MIB, which is their Medical Information Information Bureau, and they see it there. They could probably ask a question,
1: and that's the that's the key. So that's you know what I have told people is. if they ask you specifically, you have to yeah, you have them, to be honest, right? Yeah, um, and so if it is a concern for you, then do get it in place before, yeah, before you have you the, the testing. testing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the the key point there. As far as health, health insurance, insurance yeah. um, I think that again, you know, I certainly have had people tell me, "Well, you know, you can't tell me where this is going to go." Uh, listen, none of us can tell <laughs> where this is going, right? <laughs> But I think that what I have seen over 20 years of doing this is that health insurance companies have generally recognized that genetic testing for cancer risk makes medical sense, and that you cost them less money. money. Yeah, if you're doing things preventatively, even for women with a BRCA mutation who have surgeries, that is still less expensive than, than chemo. Chemo, yeah, right. So, and that's what health insurance companies care about for better or worse is uh, the the profits that they make for their shareholders, right? So, um, if you cost them less money, that's really all they care about. So,
0: So people should get testing because they they can't discriminate on insurance. Well, right.
1: So, those are the laws, right? So, the laws are, one law is HIPAA. So, people who have their insurance as part of a group plan, HIPAA says you can't be dropped or denied coverage or charged different based Mm -hmm. on a genetic test, it can't be considered to be a pre-existing condition. condition, The other law that's relevant, uh, Mm -hmm. went into effect in 2010 is GINA. So that's the genetic information, non-discrimination act. And that one was designed basically to cover people who have to purchase their own insurance on the market. On the exchanges. Yeah, exactly. So I think, um, this is, and again, I, I've, worked in settings where we did genetic testing for things that so I, I took care of patients with Huntington's disease, uh, which is a an inherited neurological condition where if you get the gene, you will absolutely get the disease. Mm-hmm. It will absolutely shorten your life, it will cause you disability, and there isn't anything, you know, people did it for planning, right? Yeah. You did the genetic testing to know how to plan. plan yeah. Um that's not true for cancer genetics, right? So there are things that we can do that will protect your health. Um, and the other piece I think that's important is uh, you know sometimes I will get people who say I want to pay for it myself so that my insurance doesn't no. Know. <laughs> but then if you need an MRI of your pancreas and you need an endoscopic ultrasound or you're going to think those about those become expensive. They become expensive and the the reason to get your insurance to pay for those is your genetic test. So I think um, I have long advocated for us to treat this just like we treat any other piece of medical information that it isn't or shouldn't be seen as a negative, different or special or worse in your record than any other type of medical information and that we should treat it that way.
0: I agree with you. And and I think that hopefully there's more of an awareness as a whole in the community, and this is hopefully you know what what our podcast does here is provide that information because I think there's a lot of whether it's nihilism or myths out there where I, I hear that often where people are like, nope, uh, I'll lose my insurance or yeah. you know I, I you know I hear it's negative, but the benefits of knowing far exceed you know what could potentially be the ultimate outcome. Yeah. Which we hope that doesn't happen to a lot of people and hopefully none of them. Right. Unfortunately, we know statistically there is going to be a a set percentage that potentially could get the disease. Jessica, thank you for the time today. The last thing here, and this has been great. I mean, I've got a lot of notes here. Again, I wish we had a vlog because people could see what we're (laughs) jotting down. Where is the best place for people to get in touch with you if someone is listening and goes, you know what, and regardless of where you live, because I know we've had people that have come up from the South, Mm -hmm. from the West Coast to come see you guys here in New York. So regardless of where you live, and even if you're listening internationally, the internet's a great place uh, Mm -hmm. to find people that are experts in this all over the world. But where's the best place for people to learn more or ask you a question that maybe they didn't, they had that. You know, maybe listening to this came up and they said, you know, I got to ask Jessica about this. What would be the best way for them to learn more, to hear more from you if they needed to get information from you?
1: Yeah, good question. So I think um, probably you can find us online. So it's the NYU Langone um, Pancreatic Cancer Center you know, Google away, and you can find us online. Google is great. Um, and then uh, you can contact the clinic uh, through that method. We have uh, an email address for the center. It's pancreaticcenter at nyulangone.org, um, which is our, uh, you know, sort of general place um, where people can direct questions or uh, inquiries about the clinic. And uh, we're happy to to catch up with you there too.
0: And the questionnaire, you guys do have a built questionnaire online. So if there are people that are listening, yes, and they wanted to just take this it's ten minute questionnaire, that's fine. We'll share it. Um, <laughs> okay. On the uh, on the, uh, I we think post it's this.
1: findpancancerearly.org, dot right. org, but we'll. I'm going to trust you to...
0: Yeah, we'll share that with our audience. You guys have a great questionnaire online. It takes literally less than 10 minutes, maybe less than five minutes to complete. And then they do have the ability to reach out or to have you guys reach out if they meet a certain criteria. Yes, and I would encourage- Not everyone does.
1: Correct. So I think that's an important point too, that sometimes people have concern and and maybe the risk isn't as high as they thought. Um, But if you go through the questionnaire and it says, hey, you should talk to somebody, then reach out to us or we also provide a link there to find a genetic counselor um, so that you can search by zip code and get information about somebody who's close to you if you're not here in New York and you want to see somebody in person.
0: Awesome. Well, Jessica, thank you again for being yeah. on the Project po- Project Purple podcast for the second time. A pleasure. And this has been great. I took a note and I, I'm going to leave this with our audience. It's be part of the solution. I think we said about, you know, even if they can't give money, they can't walk, they can't run, but you can be part of that bigger solution of, you know, giving family history and giving your DNA yeah. so that-
1: Be counted. Yeah. hmm
0: That's awesome. Thank you. And that's a wrap.